Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 244. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 244 you're listening to. My guest today is Paul Drew. Paul is a recommendation of our good friend over at production expert, James Ivey. Thank you, James, for the introduction. So Paul is also involved in production experts, so he contributes to the videos and the content that you see over there. And he and James are also in a group called the Studio Rats. We talk about that in the interview. Paul is also the D of DWB Music Limited and DWB Mixing, which is a music team that have sold in excess of, I don't know, like something like 50 million records, something crazy. They have written and produced and mixed tracks for a variety of uh, projects that we will talk about. Mixing, songwriting, pro audio content over at Production Expert, he and session guitarist. So Paul is a, a man of many talents, which we will discover in our interview. So Paul Drew coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups. Let's caffeinate and talk about community. My kids have started school. I now have uh, both of them at middle school. And my youngest, who's now in the sixth grade, has started jazz band and concert band. And I've been doing a lot of volunteer work and will continue to do so throughout the year. Uh, for the music department. His uh, band director is nothing short of amazing. This guy is part life coach, part philosopher, part band director, all around good guy who is just super passionate about music and what he, how he teaches it and the lessons that come with it. And it's, it's been very inspiring to, to see. To be in the band room has been really enjoyable. It obviously brings back memories of me being in band and he does a great thing where, you know, they have early morning jazz bands. So although I have to take my uh, my kid early to jazz band before school even starts, he does such a cool thing. He offers coffee and tea to the parents and there's a million coffee mugs there. So I just show up. It's got a like an industrial sized coffee maker uh, so I can get caffeinated, which you all know I love to do. Sit back talk to the other parents and observe what's happening with the band and it's uh, it's an amazing thing so my point in telling you that is is to to implore you to consider volunteer work for your community maybe it's the band or whatever it is maybe it's a community theater either way it's very rewarding to do volunteer work and in my case what i'm doing is, is i'm doing a podcast this is one of many things i'll be doing this year with the band but I'm doing a podcast with the band director. It's like two to three minutes, and it's meant to just convey each week's activities and the things that parents and students need to remember. So I don't know about you all, but if you have kids in school, you know there's a gazillion emails that go around, and that is just, you know, blows my mind. There's always like an email to read, and I just hate reading emails. So knowing something about podcasting, I thought, hey, here's an idea, and we do this podcast and it's really an enjoyable experience for me. It takes very, very little time to put together. 
and it really, I think, serves a great purpose. So back to volunteering for you. Consider doing it because, you know, whether it's band, as I said, or community theater, but try to find something in your community that you can offer your audio services to in some capacity. And, you know, maybe you mix records or master records, I don't, whatever it is you do. Maybe you do location sound, but you know something about audio. And maybe you can create or help facilitate some audio things within your community. And when you do that, I'm a strong believer that, and I'm not looking for this to happen, but I think inevitably it does. When you go and volunteer and you help other people and you do the right thing and you show up and be accountable and be a helpful adult, I think business follows. I think even without you soliciting it, I think that people will see you do what you do and think, ooh, I have a need for that person and I'm going to reach out to them and you'll get hired. That will lead to other work. And it's, and it's you know, we have seen time and time again on, on the Working Class Audio podcast, word of mouth is king, absolutely. And that's how most of the people on this show get their gigs. So if you think about it, put some time into the community, do the right thing, help out, be a part of the community, meet other people, get out of your cocoon and go out there. And I bet you work will follow in some capacity. It may not be thousands of dollars and you're not going to get rich off of it, but it's going to be an income stream for you. And it's something to really, really consider. So reach out to your community, be a part of it, play a part. Uh, to conclude on all of that, I mentioned LinkedIn last week. And just to recap that, I just basically was saying, if you didn't hear that episode, I'm kind of withdrawing from Facebook. And if you want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, I'm there. Uh, you want to send me a message, I'm there. Um, I don't always respond super fast, but I will respond. And if you want to, you know, friend me, whatever they, you know, do a connection request, whatever they do, it, however they do it on LinkedIn, do it. I'll accept your, your request. I don't post personal stuff on there. I post uh, things that pertain to our world. Not going to post pictures of my kids. I'm not going to post pictures of my food or my coffee cups. Uh, well, I might. <laughs> you know I love coffee, so that may make it in there. However, the point is, is that LinkedIn is an extension of this community, and it's part of your global community. So it's a great place to go to help people out by answering questions for other community members. And it's a great place to just interact and meet new people. And, you know, you get to look at people's resumes and see essentially what they've done and where they're currently at. And if there is any symbiotic relationship that you can form with another person in that community. So don't be surprised if I send you a request on LinkedIn and you haven't updated your resume, it doesn't matter. I'm not out there hunting for interviews, although don't be surprised if I ask you to be on the show because I might see your resume and go, ooh, that person might need to be on the show. And so if I ask you, don't be alarmed. Don't freak out. Uh, I just think there's a lot of you out there that are doing uh, great stuff. You're in the trenches. You're working. And uh, I might want to talk to you and bring you on the show and ask you questions. So um, that's that. So community, really consider it. Evaluate how you're doing things in your own community. And uh, don't be afraid to get out there and network with people in your own community. Lots of possibilities, lots of doors can open. Who knows? Community, check it out.
Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Paul Drew here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Paul, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on, courtesy of our friend James Ivey, who introduced us. So welcome. Thank you very much. And yeah, nice to be here. Well, I have probably more questions than we have time for, but I'll just jump right in. Let's start with current day events and we'll work our way backwards. But ultimately, what is your day-to-day -day like? What is is it that you do today? What do you call yourself? How do you categorize yourself? Oh, do you know what? It's it's a bit of a weird one because I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, probably master of none. But so my day-to-day -day job is I'm a music producer. So I have a company with two other guys called DWB Music Limited. And we have a publishing company, a songwriting side of the company, 
and production. So we do lots of work for pop. We, we do pop productions. We also do lots of stuff for television and we do productions so all, all over the world, really. I also do some work for Production Expert, which is where me and James met, where I do like reviews for, for Pro Tools Expert and Studio One Expert. And I also have another little project called The Studio Rats. And The Studio Rats is basically a band that I, that I do with James Ivey. And we do like productions and basic tuition videos for how to mix and how to play guitar parts and that sort of stuff as well. We also have a podcast for The Studio Rats. Excellent. So you have your hand in many different areas of audio. Definitely diversifying is the name of the game there, I would say. Yeah, well, well I think you have to nowadays. I mean... The music industry is very different to how it used to be. And I think the more fingers in the more pies you have, the more chance you've got at surviving in, in, in the music industry. I would agree. I've always told people on this show and those that know me personally, I definitely preach the diversification route because I look at it like three legs of a stool. And if you have one leg on the stool and that leg goes away, then what are you going to do? Absolutely. Yeah. You have to keep your fingers in the pies at the moment. It's 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 such a strange world at the moment, but it's a good world. It's good. You know, the music industry is great, I think, at the moment. It's, it is really good. I think the songwriting side of things is getting a little scary, mm. especially with the Katy Perry problem last week. The, what was the song? The big court case that's happened where Katy Perry was, you know, had to give away loads of the money for the song because it was a copyright claim. Yeah. Well, as time goes along, it seems that that's happening more and more. Absolutely, yeah. It's really happening loads. Well, we're just going to have to invent more uh, notes on, on, the, uh, <laughs> on the keyboard there for people to, to choose from, huh? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, so let's go back in time. Where did music and audio as a potential profession enter into your mind? Where did you think, ah, I can do this. I can actually feed myself this way. Well, I, I started off as a session guitar player. And I got into music technology. That was, I, I, I just loved the fact that, you know, you could, you could have a, a cassette deck, you know, like a four track and stick a cassette in it and then bounce all the tracks and just, and do that. And I used to find that absolutely fascinating. And then I worked in a music shop. This was sort of previous to me being a sort of professional guitar player, but I worked in a music shop and I really got into, just when Pro Tools came out, I really got into recording into a computer. So I've always been absolutely fascinated with, the music technology side of things. And then while I was a guitar player, while I was a professional guitar player, I got approached by this record company to, to, to see if I wanted to write some songs for this boy band that they had. And I wrote a couple of songs and they then took them and they asked me to then become their in-house producer as I was sort of interested in production at the time. And that's where I basically met my two business partners, Greg Watson, Pete Barringer. And that's when we started up DWB Music. But there's a bit of a story from that record company, to be honest. If you want to hear it, I don't know how much time we've got. Uh, well, we, we've got about an hour. So uh, cool. Yeah. If you can give me the condensed version, great. Yeah. So, and I became the in-house producer for that record company and we were doing quite well. We were selling songs quite a lot in Europe. And what happened was that we found out the company, the record company was trying to float on the stock market. So they brought in another director, an English music guy that they decided to bring, to bring in as a director. And he was then looking at all the books and he was saying, look, why are we paying these guys? <laughs> so <laughs> it's a classic. So basically they said to us, that they, uh, they called the three of us into, into the boardroom and they said, look, we want you to hang around, but we're not going to pay you anymore. So 
we decided to go off. We went down the pub, as, uh, as a lot of English people do, and we had a bit of a chat. And we worked out that the record company were basically floating on the stock market with the success that the three of us were having because the record company weren't doing anything else apart from that. So we decided to, to go off on our own to start up DWB Music. And that was, I think that was about 13 years ago. And yeah, and to be honest, that was the best thing we ever did because it just shot up from there, really. That's interesting. So did that company survive after you all left? No, no, it flopped. Absolutely, absolutely. Basically what they did, they did float on the stock market and they got quite a lot of money, but it was almost as though they were going to do that and then run the company down. It was a bit of a, oh, it mentioned the name, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. what did that teach you about your own value and what you're capable of? I think, well, I mean, it was, it was a bit of a scary time because at the time we were, you know, I just bought a new house. I just bought a new house because we were getting paid really well by this record company. But we were getting all of these, all of these cuts all over the world. So I guess value-wise, I mean, I've, it made us panic, first of all. That was the first thing we did. But Greg, who's basically the backbone of DWB Music, he, he convinced us it was the right thing to do. So it was great. It was, it, was, you know, it was the best thing we ever did. It really was. It is scary when you're venturing off into from something that was once stable into uncharted territory and you don't know what's going to happen and that fear and adrenaline mixed together sometimes can really produce some interesting results. I completely agree. I mean, it's basically as soon as people get made redundant, it doesn't matter what your profession is. It's the start of entrepreneurship. It makes people just get off their backsides and go and find something and go and try something as well, because they just think, well, let's give it a go. You know, we've got a couple of months money in the bank. Let's just let's just give that a go and see what happens. And the neighborhood pub, of course, uh, <laughs> plays a great great part in the strategizing of that future. We do have some fantastic pubs around here. Yeah, I must admit. Ah, oh, I tell you, we need more of that in the United States. We just need an influx of English pubs. Yeah, you do. You do. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'm looking at this website to my right here on the computer, and it's DWB Mixing. Now, tell me about how DWB evolved over time, and why am I looking at a mixing site when we're talking about a, a slightly different a songwriting thing, right? Yeah. Initially. I mean, yes, yes. So, so the mixing, that's just one facet. Of, of the company. I mean, when it comes to sales, basically what, what happened was we, we, we started off by selling these songs to artists and, and to record companies and working with artists in Belgium. That's how it all started. So I will get there to the mixing side in a minute, but this all leads to it. Yeah, what happened was, so, so one of these a particular artists called Born Crane, who's a very talented singer, pianist, he then got a record deal in Japan. And from that, that enabled us then to go and get a sub-publishing deal in Japan and then Korea. So our total sales of all the music that we've accumulated through the Japanese and the Korean and the European work that we've done is now, I think it adds up to about 35 million sales. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's amazing to look back on. It is amazing to look back on. But that's the great thing about, I mean, I can, I can talk about the Japanese and the Korean pop industry all day long. But the reason why the sales are still so great in Japan and Korea is because they still love physical copies. They still they still go and buy their CDs. And basically with these, just say it's a boy band that you do a song, you write a song for, you'll have, I mean, in, in Japan, you can have almost like 20, 20 guys in this, in like a boy band. So they will basically release a cover of each boy. <laughs> 
So these mega fans, they go out and they'll go and buy, you know, five copies. They'll pick their five favorite or maybe they'll buy the 20 copies. And it's such an amazing market out there because they, you know, yeah, and they still love, they still love the physical copy of a CD. I'm I'm totally puzzled by that. Why do you think the the Japanese and Korean markets are buying physical when the United States and and Europe is really not? I think it all started it starts from their culture. So I think the English and 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 the States. What we did was loads of people got really interested in downloading illegal music. Mm. Well, the Japanese culture is very honest and it's very honourable, and they don't do that. That never took off. I mean, it is, it's starting to take off now. So it's, it's starting, you know, sorry, um, streaming is starting to take off now. But their culture wasn't downloading. It was all about physical copies and the artwork on a Asian, Japanese or Korean band. The, the artwork and the... I wish I had one here I could show you, actually. I haven't got one. But when you buy these things, it's a book. It's fantastic. You get like loads of information, loads of photos, and it's a collector's item. Well, we never really had that. You know like how it used to be when we used to go and buy an LP? Yeah, I don't know if you could see that shelf behind me. It's yeah. actually loaded with LPs. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's great. So it's very much like that. Huh. That So it's a cultural thing. It's It started out as just, that's not something you do. You don't steal music. You buy music. You buy the... Do you think that it's the value in... Obviously, it's the value in the physical, but it's also just like the kitsch factor of how the the whole thing is put together. You mentioned it's like buying a book. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they they love the whole the whole package and the concert that they that, uh, that they have at say Tokyo Dome. It's just these huge, massive concerts that we can't even imagine. I mean, if you look at the way that the Western music is going, and and even videos. Let's, I mean, I could talk about the Asian videos. Go and have a look at an Asian boy band, pop band, J-pop, K-pop video. They spend just hundreds of thousands of pounds on the video. It is top end. It's so different to how we do stuff. That's fascinating. So no no expense spared, really, in the production value. Therefore, how does that translate to selling a song to an artist in that market? Like, I have no concept of selling songs. It's something I've never done. It's something I've never been a part of. So it's something I completely am out of my element on. So when you go to sell a song, if you were to sell a song in that market, is there an outright purchase or is there just you gathering royalties off that song? Well, it all depends on how it works. I mean, there was, there was a situation when we first got into Japan and the Japanese music market and the Korean music market, where we would write a song in English and they would buy the production. So they would buy all of our files, all our Pro Tools files, etc., that would get sent over and then they would then basically use the top line that we've written. So use the melody that we'd written and then change change the lyrics. So put it into, into the native tongue. But they would also use certain words out of the lyrics, out of the English lyrics. So instantly what happens is you lose 50% of the song because they are translating the song and they're not, they're not even translating, they're rewriting the song but using your melody. But the production would have been bought. So, so they buy the production off you. So that's nice. And they pay very well for production still. Then what happens? They do the release. So you would then get your royalties from the release, which is, is fantastic. And also the tour, which is fantastic. They would also then release it on a DVD. And those DVDs would also sell like mad as well. Also with the different pictures on and the, the big package. Then sometimes what happens, they, they offer a purchase deal. So what they would do is to then buy the complete song of all future earnings off of you and you get paid very well for that as well. 
Wow. Many opportunities to make money there. You're saying that you get paid when they go out on tour and perform those songs as a performance royalty. Yep. And 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 because the the concerts are so massive, the the performance royalty is is, you know, earns earns very well as well. Wow. Tell you, there's something new to learn every day. And I think because I started musical life as a drummer, didn't really write much and then kind of drove directly into the world of recording, I stayed away from that world of publishing, of songwriting, of revenue streams from those those sources. So it's interesting to hear this. Not like I'm going to jump up and go do any <laughs> of that. I know nothing of that. No, no. Well, it's, you know, the, the K-pop industry and the J-pop industry, the, the Korean pop and the Japanese music industry is actually now quite Western. If you listen to, you know, Western pop, it's actually getting more and more like that. But I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, it was a very different beast in terms of mm. in terms of the structure of the songs and even the chords that they used and stuff. But no, to, to be honest, I'm much more in your book. I much prefer to be producing and mixing and doing all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'll leave the, the great songwriting and things of that nature to much more talented people than myself. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. So you come at this from a musical standpoint, a musician standpoint, and you, but you also are in the production arena, which naturally seems to lead to the recording elements of it. Talk to me about the, the recording professional part of your life. How did, how did that creep in and lead you to doing reviews and working with production expert and James, et cetera? Well, it, as I said, it, I mean, it all started, I'm just such a gear geek. I'm just all over equipment. And if I can spend, you know, hours tweaking a tweaking a hardware compressor, I'm I'm as happy as a pig in, you know. So that's how that started. Now the studio that we had at that record company where I used to work was was actually fantastic. It was a great studio. So I had access to top end equipment and it, it was I basically got left to myself, you know, by myself just to, just to play all day and to and to learn all the equipment and to just have fun with it. And to write songs as well, obviously. So that then escalated where when we moved out, and we've got a so we've got a big studio or a bigger studio, I should say, about about ten miles from where I am now, and I have my studio in, in my back garden as well. So that's where we go if we need to do any more serious work. That's where we work, and that is where Greg and Pete, my partners, work permanently. I'm curious about how all of this eventually led you into dipping your toes even or actually diving into the pool of audio as an audio, as a mixing engineer, as a, as a recordist, how does that play its role in your world? Well, I think it was pretty much needs must. I ended up to be the technical member of the team. Mm. So I just really got into, in, into the recording side of things and I ended up doing all the mixes for all the, all the productions that we ended up doing. So that's how that ended up. And then from there, I can't remember what happened. I think Russ Hughes from, from Production Expert found out about me and he got in contact and said, look, do you fancy doing some, some mixing videos for us? So I did that. And so that's how that took off. So Russ Hughes got in contact with me and asked me if I wanted to do some mixing videos, which I thought, ah, oh, do you know what? I've seen that Pro Tools Expert and I got some information from them. So it was great. I loved, you know, I loved uh, being part of the team there. So I did some videos for them. And then 
Russ called me up one day and he said, have you heard about this Studio One? And I was like, no, not was Studio One. And I then became part of the Studio One expert team, which um, I haven't really looked back, to be honest. And at the time I had, uh, had a really nice Pro Tools HGX rig and I started using Studio One and thought, why, am, why have I got this? Why have I got all this stuff? So I moved over to Studio One permanently. So when you say, why why do I have all this stuff? Yeah. What about Studio One made you ask that question? Was it an investment in hardware? It was. I mean, yes. Well, because I, I, I had the HDX rig, mm-hmm. I felt that I wasn't, in everything that Pro Tools did, Studio One could do, especially using something like the Universal Audio Apollo system. Mm-hmm. So... It seemed like a very straightforward move over and it meant that I could basically get some investment back on the equipment that I had and just use software. I mean, basically what happened was Pro Tools, it was the time when Pro Tools started, I can't remember what it was, it was that they started charging for for subscription or it could have been before that. No, I needed to upgrade from Pro Tools, I think it was 10 to 11, something like that. And it was was going to cost me a thousand pounds. And I thought, why am I doing this? This is absolutely crazy i can do everything that i'm doing in pro tools in studio one so yeah that's when i moved over to there it's interesting that you bring that up because i went through a huge studio one phase for about a year i would say ah, okay and 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 i i don't want to say the term phase in a derogatory way i want to stress it as it was something that i was trying to see if it would work for me and yeah. the only reason i went back was because when i went to mix with the masters with chad blake you know they said please bring pro tools sessions and i did and i once i did that i was like you know maybe i'm just getting back into pro tools because i just i got back into it and i was like oh i know how this works this is very familiar territory but it is interesting when some of these newer DAWs crop up and challenge the reigning champion of Pro Tools, it really is interesting when you have spent thousands of dollars over the course of time. I mean, I went through one, two, three, three or four Pro Tools HD style rigs. Wow. And when I, you know, without kind of derailing your your interview, when I went through my troubles with a studio and I had to come back home with my gear and reevaluate everything, one of the things I did was promise myself I would never buy another Pro Tools HD rig and spend those thousands of dollars. And of course discovered, oh, okay, well I can get away with doing not only just Pro Tools software or Studio One or Logic or, or Cubase, blending that with the the universal audio ecosystem i was just so happy that i could spend much less on equipment and get the same if not better results completely agree completely agree with you based on your experiences with studio one and you know having spent lots of money in the pro tools realm what's your perspective on what gear you use to create the things you like to create these days i assume you still have a a gear lust within you and you like to explore yep. gear, but what about buying gear? What's your decision-making process like? Well, I still like hardware over plugins. I've got a bit of a thing for that. I'm afraid being a guitar player, it does, you know, that doesn't help either because guitars, amplifiers, it's just, it's never ending. So my wife is, you know, hopefully she won't listen to this, <laughs> to this podcast. Yeah, yeah don't listen, love. Yes, I, I mean, just, I love American guitars, American amplifiers, I'm just, I've got a bit of a penchant for, so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault. Yeah, I'm to blame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that's th- that's interesting. So, is it a collection type mentality, or is it just a oh, I've got to hear that, I've got to try that, and and use that in a production? That's a really good thought. I think with guitars, yes, I tend to buy one of everything, so I've got that arsenal, if you want, or that sound palette to use. In terms of recording gear, yes, it's that with microphones as well, that with compressors, that with the ever-increasing 500 series. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And here we're talking about the Japanese and the Koreans buying up CDs and what are we doing? We're buying up 500 series modules. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. It's a good thing they don't do special editions with different artistic (laughs) bents to them because... That would be a problem. That would be a problem, yes, absolutely. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things, such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Well, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the mixing with your mates. So DWB mixing, right? Yeah. On the website, it, it basically is saying, you know, we're a group of professionals. We could do stereo and surround mixes for you. We We have the success behind us. Tell me about how that is presented is somewhat of a co-op, somewhat of a of a let's get a song in, let's see who who's the best person in the group to mix this song. Yeah, it, it tends to be me being the mixer. Basically what happens is record companies send me the tracks and I send back the mixed version. It all started with some Japanese songs. Basically, we sent the we sent the productions over and they then wanted us to then mix the productions after they'd rewritten and converted all the lyrics. So that's how it started. Ever since then, it's just been, they've just been rolling in. So it's, I mean, when I say rolling in, it probably takes up a couple of days of my week mixing for other people. To be honest, that is probably my favorite side of the industry. Of mixing remotely? Yeah. People can come here and, or come to the other studio and sit in. That's, that's absolutely no problem at all. But I think just getting lost with myself and just being on my own mixing. And that's just dream for me. I love it. Let me get into a little bit of technical minutiae with you. Yeah. How do people deliver files to you? Most of the time through Dropbox or WeTransfer, to be honest. Okay. And do you charge by the mix or do you charge by a particular unit of time? We charge by the mix. Yeah, so it's always, always by the mix. So they get a couple of revisions. That's no problem at all. And anything after that is add-ons. How do you think people should base their rates for mixing? Like, how did you come up with your rate on a per-song basis? And what criteria should others use to come up with their own rate? Okay, so I have a day rate. And my day rate is pretty much, there is a, a limit to that day rate. So I will not go below that. So... I think people have to work out what their day rate is and what they're happy to earn, what they want to earn, and then what they could earn because everyone has a different ability, I guess. So if you're if you're just starting out and you're mixing, you, your day rate is going to be very different to if you're Crystal Algae or, or whoever. It's going to be a very different rate. So I guess what you have to do with other people, I guess you have to come up with a rate 
And then if you're inundated with work, your rate goes up. And if you haven't got enough work, your rate goes down. And then you have to work out, okay, well, I'm now only doing it for this. Is it worth me doing? Right. How do you avoid the race to the bottom as far as rates? If you're struggling for work and somebody comes and says, hey, you know, we do this for 100 pounds. I mean, how many 100 pound mixes would, would one do until you finally say, okay, I've had enough. I'm back to my full rate again. That's interesting. I don't know. I think... This is sort of going back to being able to, to diversify. I think we've never really had that situation where we've had to do that, luckily, and I'm really thankful for that because we have a structure in, um, in our company, which is why I'm so thankful to working with two amazing guys. If one of us is having a bad month, for instance, we're always propping each other up. So, so for instance, if I write a song and Greg and Pete, my partners, were not involved in that song, they take a third of my share. Oh. So if there's two people, there's two people writing a song, 50% each, Greg and Pete would take a third of my 50%. And that works with mixing, that works with any TV work that I might be doing, any videos and production expert type stuff. So we, there's a big pot that we're always sort of helping each other out with. And that is why I think a team is such a fantastic idea, because not only are you supporting yourself financially, but mentally as well. It's, it's just a fantastic thing to do. So all these guys that go out and they're, and they're working by themselves, you know, I don't know how they do it. It's so nice to have the backup from two other guys, two other great guys. Yeah. And when you diversify, you definitely have the ability to say no to low dollar, low pound mix offers from people. Yeah. And I think it's good to say no as well. I think it's, it's a good thing to have a set price that you want to aspire to and, and just stick to that. Now, how do you get over language barriers when it comes to, of all things, revisions? This is, this is <laughs> it's a constant problem, to be honest, especially from doing mixes from other countries. Yeah. I mean, we have to be quite thankful because a lot of the work we do is in Europe because the Europeans are fantastic at English. It tends to be a very easy process. The English are not so good at learning other languages for some reason. I don't know what the Americans are. Uh, we're horrible at it. Uh, yeah, you're probably the same as us because it's a lazy thing, but the majority of the world speaks English, don't they? But when you go to Japan, Korea, etc., more the Asian countries, that is sometimes a bit harder and sometimes you have to interpret what they're saying and try some things, just try some things. And then you go, ah, that's what they mean. Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough with English speaking people when it comes to yeah. mixed revisions. I mean, I've even to this day, one person's warm means something different <laughs> for me than it does to them or thin, or could we put a little more, whatever it is, that's difficult with English speakers. So when you introduce somebody who is not a native English speaker trying to explain some artistic perspective on how they want the snare drum to sound, that gets challenging. It is challenging. Yeah, it is challenging. And I mean, you're a drummer, I guess, aren't you? Is, is that yeah, true? Yeah, that's a, true. I'm a drummer. Yeah, you, you're a drummer, yeah. So, you know, you probably, you've heard all of the, the different terms of how they want a drum kit to sound. And yes, it is challenging and you have to be a bit more patient. Patient is the key term there for sure. Well, so where do you currently live? Which city do you currently live in? So I live in a city just outside. Well, my local city is a place called Guildford, mm. which is in Surrey. 
and I live in the Surrey Hills, which is about five miles from Guildford. I'm completely blessed where I am. I live in, I've got loads of countryside around me. I've got the beautiful Surrey Hills. And if you saw the Olympics, the, you know, the London Olympics a few years ago, all of the cycling, that's, that's where I live, all, all around all the green parts. Yeah, I love where I live. That has no bearing on Guilford fabrics, or does that, is that where Guilford fabrics come from? Sometimes whenever you I've choose... I've never heard of... Never heard of that? Okay. No. Yeah, when you choose, when you go to like buy acoustic products from any of the any of these companies, sometimes they'll list Guilford Fabrics as like the high end fabric. <laughs> so no, I don't know. It's amazing. Maybe. I'm not sure it comes from Guilford, but <laughs> I'd have to have a look at that. In general, how do you find the ecosystem of of the English recording industry? So what happened a few years ago was. Basically, there's an area in London called Tarliard, and that is now our studio city. So it's where all of the studios are. And not even just just studios, but small writing rooms to decent recording studios have all been put in this basically industrial area. It's actually near King's Cross. So, yes, everyone tends to know everyone. There's always social events going on at Tarliard, so, so there's always meetings and parties and stuff, so everyone tends to go up there. So everyone does tend to know each other. And I don't even think it's just UK-based. I think even the European base is quite strong. And basically because DWB Music became such a big publisher for the Asian market, people tend to know who we are. So we tend to know quite a lot of people. And what also happened as well is we, we started doing songwriting camps. Mm. So basically we would go and hire a bunch of studios. DWB Music would go and hire a bunch of studios and we would then invite professional songwriters to come and write for a particular product. And that's another thing that we're sort of known for. For instance, if an artist, a certain artist wanted a week-long songwriting camp, they would then get in contact with Greg and Greg would organise the whole sort of studio and all of the infrastructure that would be around that so and you know we get people in from all over the world that come down to our songwriting camps you have to be invited unfortunately it isn't like a paid thing it's a free thing but we we organize that for artists and for record companies so a good sense of community you feel is what you have there absolutely i mean it's yeah it's fantastic yeah absolutely fantastic yeah i'm obsessed right now with that because having spent some time in nashville and observing their community there and then coming back to the Bay Area, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, and observing where we're at now, I am on a mission to do more outside of the normal confines of the Recording Academy or the AES Society or AES in general. So that's fascinating to hear about what other people are doing in their communities and how they bring people together. Question for you, in terms of great catastrophes or failures that you've had in your past as a recording professional, as a music professional, have you had some that, I hope you haven't had many, but of those that may have come your way, have you learned some great lessons from those that you carry with you to this day? Has any disaster on a business level, on a personal level happened that you really learned from? and would be willing to pass along to others. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, my son was born eight years ago and my son was born with quite a serious heart condition. So at that point, eight years ago, I really started to reevaluate what I was doing in the music industry. Ooh. So I, and I will get to your point, it's sort of skirting around it. So that hit me really, really hard. So, and I then got to the point in the music industry where I thought, look, why am I doing this? And I've got this fantastic company that I, you know, there's two guys that I work with and they really enjoy doing the Asian side of the market that we deal with. So I then started just to concentrate on the Western side of the business. So 
Now, I'm quite lucky because of the, the success that we've had, I'm able to take a step back from having to panic about bringing in money and stuff. So I tend to start to think about what other projects I can be doing or what other projects that you know we could be doing as a company. So that's when I started just concentrating on the Western side of music. And recently, even more than that, I started getting a little bit fed up with doing programmed, overproduced pop stuff. So about a year ago, I said, right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a year out from doing programmed pop stuff. And I'm going to start a project called Studio Rats. So Studio Rats is basically... Now, I wanted to work with like proper bands, you know, proper musicians in a musician setting as opposed to just sitting by myself, just producing music. So and I probably skirted around your issue here a little bit, but the disaster was it wasn't really a, a disaster in the music industry. It was a, a change of lifestyle because I felt that I had to change. What was I doing because of my son? I felt I really had to find something different and find something that I was then going to start to enjoy a lot more. So, yeah, basically we started this thing called the Studio Rats and I wanted to call it a midlife crisis, whatever it is. <laughs> I then <laughs> I then wanted to produce music that I wanted to hear myself and not just music that other people wanted me to produce. So that's how that started. I hope I've answered your question. <laughs> it's It seems that your decision-making based on your son's condition really started you down a path of evaluation of, am I happy? I need to make sure that I'm doing something that brings me enjoyment while at the same time generating a living. Yeah, absolutely. What are your overall, in the world of audio and music, Sometimes the business and the money are at odds with one another. You know, the business and the money versus the art. So it sounds like you got a grip on that early on, but what is your overall philosophy about dealing with money as far as some people pull it right in and send it right out by buying up 500 series modules? <laughs> Yeah. Are you somewhat of a saver? You have a family, you have a son with this heart condition. So yeah. obviously there's seriousness in any family, but when you add something like that, there's another level yeah. of it. So how does that shape your overall business and financial philosophy? I mean, it's, it's quite a difficult one. I'm not financially driven at all, but luckily because of the success that we've had, I can take a sort of step back from being financially driven. So I don't know if, if, if I was sort of scraping around for every penny, if I would be if that makes sense. So no, personally, I'm not financially driven. I'm a saver. Mm. I'm a saver, but I'm not the sort of person that would then, I wouldn't take on that project because I needed the money. Even if I need the money, I would rather not take on a particular project. For me now, it would, it would have to be something that I would really want to do. Also, to piggyback on that question, the English are known as far as my perception of many mm -hmm. of, of the many English friends I have, they're not ones who tend to brag. The English in general seem reluctant to self-promote. Yes. Do you think that that's accurate? And do you think that that applies to you? I would like to think so. Yes, I do find, I find putting stuff on even Facebook or Instagram, I find advertising what you've done, I find it. When you see someone on Facebook or Instagram and they're bragging about what they've just done, I find that just crass and, and horrible. So yes, I think that's a very English thing. Funny enough, the Swedes are the extreme of that, are the extreme of underselling themselves. Mm. If you ever speak to any Swedes, they're, they're amazing. They're, they're just it's such a fantastic upbringing culture. It's brilliant. Very humble. Very humble. Very humble, yeah. Would never brag about what they've achieved. Amazing. I wonder where that comes from. I wonder why, I mean, most of my American audio professional friends 
always put stuff out on Facebook. I've done it. Happy to have worked on, you know, this. Mix this, picture of the record cover, et cetera. Yeah, I'm, that's great. That's great. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm curious where that comes from the English. I wonder why the English do take that step back and kind of that reserved nature. Well, I honestly, I think it's our culture, but it is changing. It is changing. I guess, you know, everyone's hustling now, aren't they? Mm, very it much seems, so. It seems to be everyone's hustling and people need to promote themselves and especially with social media it happens a lot more but I mean it's definitely changing and I think you and me are probably of a similar age I'm in my mid-40s so I think if you ask a 20 year old now I'd be like nah you know no bang on Facebook you know (laughs) but it's it's all about if I can if you don't mind me swearing it's all about bullshit that's what it seems like on Facebook there's a lot of bullshit yeah it's interesting, like in the past, before the internet, especially when it came to like uh, English-based engineers and producers, like there was always a little bit of mystery about them. As an American hearing about Alan Mulder and Flood, you know, yeah. it's like, I have no idea what they look like, but you know their work. And that yeah. always fascinated me. For me, that was the golden age where, you know, these people were almost like gods. They were so untouchable and you know you didn't know what these people look like and now because everything is so open on these even pop stars i mean you remember when michael jackson released off the wall or thriller he was like it was just like this as you say like this untouchable person that was so aloof and it was magical every time he did something and now because of the the amount of social media and information out there you know everyone could be your best friend and and you know even even the press and i know some you know the english press is sort of known for probably ruining a lot of <laughs> pop stars, <laughs> you know, professions. But it, yeah, you bring up a good point though. It's, it's almost like, I think before the internet, our shared experiences culturally, whether you're mm-hmm. in the US or in the UK or in Europe or anywhere in the world for that matter, when a worldwide pop star like, like a Madonna, like a Michael Jackson, when they did something, it was like, <gasps> all oh, the focus was on them. But now it's just like, that just seems like, you know, news stories that fly right past you. Sometimes my wife will ask me, like we were in a restaurant one day recently and I can't remember who the artist was. Anyway, I said, who's this? And she said, oh my God, please tell me you know who so-and-so is. And I, I just was like, I have no clue. There's so much, <laughs> there's so much information. There's so much to keep up with. Yeah. We don't have those same shared experiences as we used to. Absolutely. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Well, so tell me a little more about the Studio Rats venture. What part of your life does that 
fulfill? Is it more a personal thing or is there a business angle there? It's a bit of both, to be honest. It is a personal thing. So as I said, with me just getting fed up with just working by myself and producing program pop music. Yeah, I really wanted to get together with proper musicians and and also work with some of the fantastic songwriters that I've worked with, some of the fantastic vocalists and songwriters that I've worked with over the years and to to write songs that would be in keeping for the studio rats. So it started off like that, a, a bit of a midlife crisis. And then it sort of evolved from there. So from there, we, we are now doing videos for certain companies. So, I mean, I can't say what the company is at the moment, but we're going into the studio next week and we're doing a whole video, basically going into a studio using the company's equipment and and just creating a video, some video teams coming in to do that. So that started off. And then we thought, well, what are we doing here? So we thought tuition videos as well. So I do like mixing videos and how-to videos, like for instance, like simple things, how to layer up guitars, how to mic up a guitar amp, how to use this guitar pedal, how to do that. And James and Dan, James drummer, who you know, and Dan, the bass player are doing the same sort of things. You know, and then we thought, well, how can we promote this? So we thought, well, we'll start a podcast. So we started up the Studio Rats podcast and that's been, I think we're on episode six or seven at the moment. We have a lot of fun. It's a bit of a jovial time, but it's, it's done from like musicians' point of view. So the three of us are talking. It isn't just, I'm a guitar player and I'm going to talk about guitar stuff. It's like, I'm a guitar player, but I'm going to talk to the bass player and, and a drummer and see what their perspectives are of what we're doing and and music industry as well. And, you know, equipment that's coming out, new gear and, you know, what have we bought this week? What have we tried this week? You know, it's all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I'm loving it at the moment. And I'm hoping at some point it would be a financial thing. But at the moment, I just want to give back a little bit and show people how, how to do certain stuff and or how I would do certain stuff, not necessarily how you should do certain stuff. Audience, we'll put a link in the show notes to the Studio Rats podcast so you can check that out, of course, as well as all the other things that we've talked about. So I also want to ask you, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mm -hmm. the way you just phrased what you just said makes me think you have an internal drive to create content no matter what the financial payoff is. Yes, very much so. I think there's a lot of content out on the internet that is fantastic. And there's a lot of content that's out on the, on the internet that is frankly shocking. So I always say this is how I do something. It's not necessarily how it should be done. So I'm, I'm hoping that the content that we're sending out is, is useful to people, yeah. I have the same drive to create content and I only have so much bandwidth. So most of my energy goes into creating the Working Class Audio podcast. But in terms of wanting to take the knowledge that you have and put it out there into the world, I, I definitely identify with that. Well, people don't, it's gone now, isn't it? The, the, the whole coming in as an intern and moving up, it's now, I mean, it's been diminished massively, hasn't it? So any way that people that have done stuff, it's, it's fantastic to give that information, information back. There is a, a lot of great stuff out there. But as much as we do have great stuff out there, there is a lot of like head scratching stuff out there as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's great that you're do- you guys are doing that. So Studio Rats is something I'm going to have to check out. You know, I heard about it briefly from James, but now I'm going to have to go and listen to the podcast. Oh, great. Yeah. We'll have to get you on one day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If, if there's anything I have to, to compliment what you all are doing, I'm sure it's, I'll have to check it out. Absolutely, no. There definitely will be. You do a lot of British television work as far as composing, right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. How did you get into that? What brought that to your door? Wow. Well, it was all to do, it all started with a co-writer that I used to work with. And 
she, I don't know, I, don't, I can't remember how it happened, but we basically, we wrote some songs and they ended up going on, actually, I think it's American channels. And ever since then, I, th- I think it was Pretty Little Liars, I think was the series. It was an American yeah, series, I think. That's an American series. Yeah. And we then got approached by an agent in the UK who just deals with TV work. And the British TV industry is very different, I think, to the American system, where like we, we really only have our domestic television is only five channels. So we've got BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, Channel Four and Channel Five. And that's it. So we have five channels to choose from, which probably sounds like hell for you because you need to, you know, you need your hundred and whatever channels. I, I know. Well, that, you know, we started out with three and, and then eventually HBO in the 70s. So that sounds like my childhood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is fantastic because um, I don't know if this is true, but it feels to me that especially the BBC produces such amazing content on the TV programs. I don't even know if you get them over there. My wife tends to watch a lot of BBC-based crime dramas, like uh, okay. I think Vera, is that one of them? I'm not sure that if, if that's the title. It's but about even a, things like Downton Abbey and stuff like oh that. Oh, God, she's yeah. watched Downton Abbey, like, I don't know, she's watched the whole thing like three different times. <laughs> wow, wow. Like the entirety of it. Oh, wow. Well, well, and I think we're really fortunate in the UK because the amount of money and content that the BBC and ITV and all these, you know, all our five stations, they really do get some fantastic programs. But that also means that the music side of that is quite limited. It's limited to quite a few composers. So if you can get into the TV industry in the UK composing or whatever, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing, especially the BBC. So yeah, we started doing stuff for this fantastic agent and every couple of weeks a new job comes in or every every three weeks, you know, a new job comes in and we, we do some music for a TV program and it's, and it's, I love it, absolutely love it. When you do that, are you doing that in Studio One? Actually, majority of stuff is in Studio One unless I work with another composer and that tends to be logic. I was going to ask if that was the case. And then... Is that a different financial arrangement as compared to doing music in, as we discussed earlier in great length, the Asian markets of selling CDs? Is that vastly different financially? It is. It's vastly different in the upfront payment for, it tends to be quite a union rate thing. Mm. So the BBC has as a set amount that it would say, okay, well, this, we need a theme tune that's 30 seconds. We need some stings. We need some whatever, some background music, whatever. And here is the amount of time that you need to compose for. Therefore, we are offering this amount of money and that is fixed. You can't go back to them every time. We try, we try it every time saying, oh, no, come on, give us a bit more. No, they never do. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's also based on a royalty payment as well, which is fantastic because not only is when you write something for the BBC that then goes out on BBC, it can then go out on BBC Worldwide. Other countries can then also buy that content. So you then end up getting quite a nice royalty payment every every quarter. Wow, that's fantastic. Oh yeah, I mean we we certainly see a lot of BBC content here in the States for sure. Uh, and you know and, and vice versa we get lots of fantastic American content as well. Just out of curiosity, what's big in, in the UK in terms of American television shows? American t- well it's because of internet television, because of Amazon Prime and Netflix, uh-huh. I guess. It's always gonna be Stranger Things. It's always gonna be <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Netflix, the Netflix big hits and uh, well, the Amazon big hits, I guess. American Gods and the, what's the new one? The Boys. Have you seen that yet? 
I haven't seen that. Oh, that is fantastic. That's on Amazon. That's an Amazon one, yeah. yeah okay. It's fantastic. Just to kind of conclude our conversation, but also to put a point on all of this, whether you're composing, whether you're a recording person or both, there are a lot of opportunities these days. It's really good times in terms of Netflix, Amazon, and all the vast numbers of other stations and content providers just in the world of television alone, not in, not even counting film or video games or music. There's just so much opportunity out there for creating audio, composing music, all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And there is that. There are so many channels that you can write for, but there are so many different things. I think it is, it's such a great time in the music industry because there are so many opportunities. If you don't mind diversifying, there are so many opportunities to do stuff. And it isn't the 80s, the 90s anymore. You can't earn millions from, from having a number one. That doesn't happen anymore. So we have to find these opportunities, be it television, be it diversifying, being a beat maker or a, a mixer or a, a content provider or there's all of these things that are just, you know, all you, all you have to be is have a slight entrepreneurial spirit and you'll do well. If you're yeah. lazy, you won't. I think that's the thing. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we want to thank our, our good friend, James Ivey, for introducing us. I look forward to meeting you in person in the future. And I'm not sure when the next time I'm going to be in England is, but if you're ever in the States and, uh, well, if you're ever in the Bay Area, don't call me from New York and say, do you want to meet for coffee? But if you are in the Bay Area, please, <laughs> let's figure out a way to meet up in person. That'd be great. Or if you're in the UK, we go to a pub. We'll go to a pub or we'll go have a cup of tea. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Paul, will you take care? And audience, links will be in the show notes for everything that we talked about today. So thanks again, Paul. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. Paul Drew here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for listening today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. I want to make sure and thank everybody that helped out with today's show. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Chuck Smith for that lovely announcer's voice that he has. I want to thank you for joining us again. Make sure you head on over to workingclassaudio.com and sign up on our email list to stay abreast of what we're doing. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. 
many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 